Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here with Brian Swim, a cosmologist, author, and uh, how else can I introduce you, Brian? <laughs> I, was waiting, I was waiting for the next noun. Uh, I, I guess I'm a professor. Yeah. Yes, a professor. Are you at CIIS? I am. Okay. Yes. That's the California Institute of Integral Studies. And in a former incarnation, you were a practicing cosmologist. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes, and then I got carried away by all this consciousness stuff. Uh-huh, which has nothing to do with cosmology, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the standard line in science. That's yeah. out there, and there's stuff in here, and the two <laughs> realms are separate, yeah? Yes, <laughs> just keep them apart. Yeah. So, um, well, okay, maybe we'll start with that. What What do you think is a way to describe the connection between what's inside here and what's outside there? My simple way of saying it is that we, we're discovering that when we, when we look out at the stars, we're looking at that which created the looking. So during the modern period, we, we looked at the stars as objects out there. Right. But now we have this amazing insight that we're looking at that which created the molecules that built our bodies and our minds and that now are looking back. So it's just, um, for me, it's such a, just a mind job to be looking at that which is looking. It's such a strange phrase to so, look at that which is looking. That's the, that's the thing I'm captivated by. I'm sure you, there's more to that simply than the elements that compose our bodies were created in stars that were born and died. And then the, you know, whatever solar disc accreted and made planets and that is in our bodies. And like, is it just a kind of random mechanical process or is, do you think there's more to it than that? You know, the, uh, we of course have proceeded throughout modern science by assuming that it is a random mechanical process. <laughs> but the difficulty comes when we realize that a, this mechanical process uh, created a consciousness that reflects on it. So, so clearly, our understanding of the process as mechanical mm -hmm. is, is insufficient. It's something uh, much more complex taking place. It's not nothing like a machine, you know. It's um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a it's a universe giving birth 
to the power of understanding itself. We were so content just thinking about the way in which it happened in terms of matter, in terms of mechanism. But when we bring in the, the idea of mind and consciousness, it becomes, it becomes fascinating and it's way beyond the paradigm of modern science. What, what uh, started you thinking this way? I mean, wh- where was the deviation from conventional <laughs> scientific thinking? Like, what happened to you? I love it. What yeah. happened to me? <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. You know, I've wondered about that. I had this, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, Thomas Berry and I wrote this book mm-hmm. called The Universe Story. And when, when we were introducing it uh, in Berkeley, there, there's this amazing moment, and it relates exactly to your question. So in the audience, you know, in the, the book release, was Houston Smith. And mm-hmm. I'm going on and on about how fantastic the universe is and on and on. And then he stands up afterwards and he says, Brian, because, you know, we know each other. He says, Brian, uh, Steven Weinberg mm-hmm. knows apparently, everything you're talking about, and yet his conclusion is that the universe is pointless, it's meaningless. And then he looked at me and he said, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, there's, I don't think there's an easy explanation, but at least there's a biographical one, and that is that uh, I went to a Jesuit high school, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that the they had me read was the works of this French Jesuit paleontologist, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, that was like a crossover point, you see, because he was speaking from a much deeper place than the standard modern science. He was, he was really an impressive scientist, all all sorts of results, but Mm -hmm. he, he had a larger vision of reality and, and just having that, in my mind, his ideas enabled me to escape the prison of uh, reductionist science, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Charles, let me interrupt you and say, yeah. I would love to know, do you have, is it comparable with you? I mean, you know, you could have, you, you started off studying mathematics and so forth. Uh, how is it that you didn't end up? Well, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, for one thing, I was really dissatisfied with the answers to the deep questions that I discovered in mathematics and philosophy, too, I studied in college. Yeah. It didn't satisfy my thirst to know, like, why are we here? Yeah. The reason I studied mathematics and philosophy, or one reason, uh, or the reason that sounds good, at least, is that I thought that these are the foundations of knowledge. Yeah. Answers are anyway, they've got to be there. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so like, I, you know, I didn't get anything satisfying. And then I went to Taiwan and began having experiences that were flagrantly in violation of what I had been told was real. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so that those became the ally of my dissatisfaction. And I began yeah, asking I, bigger questions. So in a certain sense, you, um, you you left the scientific tradition and explored the Asian wisdom of meditation and consciousness. Would that be? Oh yeah, I, I'm not. I, I was a very very poor practitioner, but 
the cultural context there, like I had experiences with um, Chinese medicine and Qigong and okay, um, yeah, yeah, you know, things yeah. that would be considered supernatural in our society were quite commonplace and unremarkable. They yeah. were psychiatrized or or whatever pathologized, but they were. So, so then it was similar for me. Um, even though I didn't, I didn't go to Asia. Um, it was like, in other words, my encounter with this French Jesuit, Thierry, mm-hmm. uh, it was similar in that he lived in a different culture. And for him, the universe was suffused with a divine presence. So that he just took that as the foundation of reality. Mm-hmm. And that would, of course, uh, that throws him out of the the reductionist, materialist, scientific point of view. But I mean, I guess in a certain sense, I would want to say that for me, Teilhard, he thought of science as an absolutely crucial pathway into the deepest understanding of things. Mm-hmm. So long as one didn't collapse into a reductionist interpretation. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, you know, I've, I've really been riding on that wave uh, my whole life. Yeah. I mean, that would almost be an example of one of these anomalous data points that I was talking about, because you read the guy, I mean, the guy's got a powerful intellect um, and writing, what was it like early 20th century, right? Yes, exactly. So it's not, you know, you read that and you can't just dismiss it on the grounds of, well, you know, he must not fully understand science and how powerful explanatory framework it offers. Exactly. Offers, you know, some boob. Yeah. And, and so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that whole body of thought? In order to maintain a reductionistic worldview, you have to pretty much denigrate it, dismiss it, yeah. and not really take it fully on its own terms. Because, I mean, what are you going to think? Like, oh, he, you know, just squandered his entire career chasing rainbows. <laughs> yeah. right? like, and when this one thing I realized is that to maintain the orthodox view of reality that I had grown up in, it wasn't only an intellectual position, but it was also an emotional, psychological stance that held me as more rational, more sane, a better observer of reality than these superstitious idiots who had no capacity for introspection or um, self-reflection. Like they're just intellectually sloppy and irresponsible. Like I had to hold myself apart from and above. Uh, basically everybody who disagreed with me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the arrogance of uh, the modern scientific tradition is, is something to behold. Uh, but I, I guess the way I think about it is that, for what it's worth, uh, the science, when they really captured the scientific method with Galileo especially, it was so amazing. We were learning things that, that just were never known before. And I, it just went to our head. You know, it was just it's sort of a, like an adolescent response. We, we thought we had everything and yeah. we overdid it. We just rejected all the other forms of knowledge. But one of the exciting things about our time, and I know you, you share in this, is that that scientific um, reductionist arrogance is breaking apart. I mean, I'm not saying it's over, but I'm saying it, it's, wow, we live in a time when we're exploring an integration of the Western scientific point of view and, and these deep insights coming from ancient spiritual 
traditions as well as contemporary spiritual traditions from all over the planet. At least mm-hmm. that's how I, how I, uh, I see my own work and, and yours and, and others that are involved with this. It's, it's just this exciting time of synthesis. I mean, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, very few scientists will, you know, come out and say that they are reductionists now. Yeah. Definitely fallen yeah. out of vogue. For me, and I think about what actually reductionism is, it's not to deny that the analytic reductionistic method can offer powerful insights and that it's a powerful tool. But I think that reductionism gives primacy to that way of explaining things. Like it says, out of all the different ways, like all the different causes of something, uh, what did Aristotle call it? The, the, uh, the real cause. cause. Yeah, like I can't remember. The efficient cause, yeah. Like of all the different causes, the one that's real is the reductionistic cause that basically comes down to it it happened because a force was exerted on something. Yeah. So it's this causal, this downward causal structure that, that as the only valid legitimate reason why something happened is the force that acted on it. And basically says that the upward causes, the teleological causes, the, the purpose for things, yeah. that is kind of an illusion. You know, that's just the result of a summation of lots of reductionistic causes. Yes. So it's, it's a story about reality that is really limited and limiting, but not in itself wrong. I, I mean, very well said. Exactly. It's not wrong, but it isn't the whole picture. And yeah. when we take it to be the whole picture, then we're missing huge dimensions of reality. Right. Right. Yeah, one of the most trippy experiences I've ever had was when I was 22, and, in, and I, was, I was in Taiwan already, and this is exclusive of my actual trippy experiences. <laughs> I was, I was, someone gave me uh, a book by Ilya Prigogine. And, oh, uh, one of my heroes. Order Out of Chaos. Have you ever read, read that book? Oh, I love that book. Absolutely. Oh, my God. That, was, that, was, <laughs> that just blew my little mind at the time. <laughs> Because that's great. I mean, here was an impeccable scientist. Yeah. Um, Nobel Prize winner. Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. Um, Just basically demonstrating that meaningful things happen that cannot be explained by the reductionistic causes. Yeah. Right. Like the reductionist is like you can say that the convection cells, the hexagonal convection cells in a beaker uh, well, that's, those are nothing but these, you know, individual molecules bumping up against each other and expanding and et cetera, et cetera. But to say that they are hexagonal because this molecule, this molecule, this molecule, and this molecule all did that, it, it doesn't explain it at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's a, it's such a great demonstration of the reality of, as you're mentioning Aristotle, you know, what Aristotle called formal causation. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it's just so right. fantastic to think that we live in a universe where these patterns emerge and participate in the organization of structure. You know, just, um, just because I so love this, um, this new scientific theory, and some of your listeners might want to explore it, the person who is 
who has really carried Ilya Prigogine's uh, theory forward is Terence Deacon. Terence Deacon at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the head of the, he was the head of the anthropology department. At any rate, his book, Incomplete Nature, does exactly what you are speaking of. He's showing that there's a way in which we can understand from the orientation of thermodynamics, the way in which purpose is part of the universe. And that, so th there's been, a, there's been a l many centuries when scientists have thrown out the idea of purpose, as you were saying, teleology. Mm -hmm. But now it's finding a way back in within the, the very structures of science. So mm -hmm. Incomplete Nature by Terence Deacon. Is, if you haven't well, read that yet, Charles, I know you'll love it. It's just terrific. Yeah, I have not read it yet, and uh, I it's will. It's well known, but it's, it's uh -huh. just <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. But what really blew my mind also, the, you know, the emergence that comes from nonlinear thermodynamics is yeah. one thing. Yeah. But what really blew my mind is that was the, the first time I saw the Mandelbrot set. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's a mind job. <laughs> yeah. That's we'll, a riot. We'll have to put this in the show notes uh, so people know what we're talking about. But, you know, here's this mathematical object. I mean, this isn't even physics. This is pure mathematics. Pure where you mathematics. Have, yeah. Where you have incredible beauty and structure, organization, that you cannot explain. Because the equation that generates this endlessly, infinitely complex, ordered object is literally like one line long. It's the, the simplest possible formula. It's not, and it's not just like a bunch of random complexity, you know, yeah. a, a mathematical fuzz, as they call it. It's, it's all these spirals and whirls and cell-like things. And, and you zoom in and it just, in some parts of it, gets more and more and more complicated as you zoom yeah. in. And just keeps coming and coming and coming as you go penetrating down. Oh, it's just amazing. You know, there are, yeah. You know, friends of mine that I don't use psychedelics. I mean, it's, I'm not against it. It's great, but some of my friends do. And, and they will say just watching the images of the Mandelbrot set come forth mm -hmm. very much like being on a psychedelic journey. Mm -hmm. Just that the infinities within the infinities yeah. in this universe. Wow. Yeah. And you can't explain it. Like if you say, well, why? The only reason you, the only reason you can give is to quote the definition, to quote the formula. <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, wow, so here is design without a designer. Yeah. Beauty yeah. without an artist. It's built into reality itself. Yeah, even built, on into reality. built into reality. Yeah. yeah. And we had that sense, again, going back to the, the uh, unfortunate arrogance of 19th century modern science, we had the sense that we were real close to finally understanding everything and mm -hmm. our simple little models and the, the Mandelbrot said, even though it's pure mathematics, it, it, it captures in a way the universe is, is, is complex beyond our imagination. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> I love that. That made a big impact on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still, I, I still, in a way, I still can't wrap my mind around it. But you're the first person that has said, that a spiritual awakening came from the Mandelbrot set. I, I think that is fantastic. I, I, I may be the first person who said it, but I bet it's not the first person who's had that experience. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, but it was, I was primed for it because I had studied recursive function theory a bit 
in college and I understood the significance of, of something that had some kind of organization or beauty to it that was not a um, recursively enumerable set. Like there's no way to reduce it to something smaller than itself. Yes, yes, yeah. I guess it's a great example of irreducibility. The word recursive and recursion, I, I think that actually, the way in which the universe folds back on itself, it's, these are all related. These ideas are related to what I was trying to say earlier, that, that looking out at the stars is looking at that which created the looking. You know, mm-hmm. So it, it's the universe folding back on itself. There is an illusion of separation, an illusion of, of the other. But it's the case that we're all folded back into each other in these profound ways. So I just want to make that mm-hmm. connection between the recursion in the, in the Mandelbrot set and mm-hmm. the recursion in uh, contemporary cosmology. It also reminds me of holographic universe theories. Like holograms are very similar to fractals yeah. in that way. Yeah. You have, have you like, developed any thinking around holographic universe theories? No, I haven't. You know, it's funny because I, um, I, it's, it's only because of an, of an early prejudice on my part, mm. um, because the holographic images weren't including time. And I was so captivated by the way in which the universe evolves through time. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there are tremendous insights in there that I have not really uh, appreciated. But I, I would love to hear you reflect on it. Well, maybe I'll, I'll take this path. Um, you were talking before about the miracle of conscious matter looking back yeah. itself. Um, and one way to look at it is that if you are positing kind of a random universe, then to explain something as highly organized as brain tissue or a microchip. Um, I mean, if you just had, you know, a random gas of yeah. various elements, you know, the chances of them coming together in that way are pretty much zero or basically <laughs> zero. Like the number that you would have to write to express the chances of that would not even be possible to write with all the ink in the world. You know, it's, yeah. a lot of exponents. Right. I mean, it's just crazy. Right. So, yeah. So, there's this kind of bootstrapping process toward more and more complexity. Yeah. Okay. So if your only way of looking at the world is these kind of generic forces, gravity, especially, it's just, it's just hard to understand how so much complexity could arise from that. And I wanted to ask you, yeah. um, And even if you're not going to that level of like, you know, brain tissue, that level of complexity, actually outside what we call living systems, there is way more complexity than most people realize in, for example, the sun. You know, ordinarily people think of the sun as this big ball of, you know, fusing hydrogen gas. Yeah. But actually it has like incredibly intricate structure. Yeah. And, and, And a lot of it comes... Um, from the um, from electromagnetism and not gravity. Like gravity doesn't make for a very interesting structure, but electromagnetism is much more nonlinear because you get, say, a, 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 some structure of plasma, some jet of plasma, and that creates its own uh, electromagnetic field, which then orders other things, and it kind of creates this nonlinear nonlinearity. So you know, I'm, I'm I mean, I'm obviously not a cosmologist, but I've been 
suspicious for a while of dark matter. It looks to me that they invented it so their equations would work uh, and the galaxies wouldn't, you know, spin apart and so on. And, yeah. and to make the, um, and dark energy to make the expansion theory, you know. So there's like this, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but these uh, heterodox cosmologists who talk about an electric universe. Yeah. Which, and an organization uh, structure, an emergent organization seems much more at home in some of these electric universe theories. And I wonder if you have any, any, uh, anything to say about all that? Oh, I, I do. I do. And uh, I, I guess the way I'd start off, <laughs> the way I'd start off is to say that in keeping with the theme of our, of our conversation, uh, there is an impulse in the scientific tradition to keep things as simple as possible. So there's that, that great phrase um, that we, we, you know, we try for simplicity, but, but we distrust it. So you, that you want to, you want to, you don't want to cave into a simplistic understanding, mm -hmm. but you, you want a, an ultimately simple one, simple in the sense of the way a, um, like a bird flying across the sky, there's a simplicity to the movement, mm -hmm. even though it's, it's only possible because of the highly complex organism that the bird is. There's this relationship between uh, deep simplicity and, and deep complexity. So mm -hmm. with that as an overall theme, we have this, now I'm, I'm just talking about cosmologists uh, yeah. in particular. We have this horrendous discovery. I mean, it, it, it's still, it still just blows my mind when I think about it. <laughs> this, um, so that we have the, we have the universe expanding. That alone, um, to discover the universe expanding is, it's hard to, we went from, we, in the 20th century, we went from the idea that the universe consisted of one galaxy uh -huh. to the, the observed, the empirical, a datum that the universe consists of at least a trillion galaxies. So mm -hmm. that, that is like an unbelievably massive expansion yeah. of, in our view of the universe. It's, it's, there's no parallel in the history of humanity. So we, we're like, you know, we're just, we're blinking, you know, we're like deers, deer in the headlights. We don't, it's trying, we're trying to make sense of this and it's, it's just overwhelming. So, then, and then one of the things that, the, of the first things that was discovered by Edwin Hubble in the 20s mm -hmm. is that the universe is expanding. But then uh, Stephen Hawking did a calculation. <clears throat> he was simply looking at the rate of the expansion. And right. what he discovered is that, that that rate clearly couldn't have been different. So if, it, if you modify the rate of expansion just by the slightest amount, I made it a little bit faster, mm -hmm. the universe would never have had life in it. Right. So trying to understand that has been a, a central challenge for the entire scientific community, but especially mathematical and observational cosmologists. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the current 
so-called explanation, which would be favored by the majority of mathematical cosmologists, is to imagine that there are an infinite number of universes. And in every one of those universes, the universe is expanding mm -hmm. at all different kinds of rates. And, and so there's all, but there are just a tiny number of universes where the expansion leads to life. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and as, as Stephen Hawking, he liked that explanation, by the way. So Stephen Hawking, he said, well, you see, there's nothing marvelous about our universe. Now, I, I object so violently to this. That's the anthropic principle, right? It's one version of it. Yeah. One version, but, the, but the, the common phrase is just, it's called the multiverse, mm -hmm. multiverse. And the, I, I just, you know, it's, it's, I, I have such an emotional reaction because we don't have evidence of any of these universes, none. Right. And yet we're happy to think that they exist. And why? So, you know, I think, I think actually. Just to make ours not special. The only reason to invent them is to make ours not special. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly it. It's to deny so, the miracle of it. Deny the miracle of it. So we have, we, have a, we have a deep psychological need to think of this universe as just being ordinary. And it's not. It's a miracle. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like an infinite miracle. And we, so we are, we are incapable of understanding at this point. We do not know how it is that the universe has this elegance from the very beginning, mm -hmm. as you were saying, the complexity, it's, it starts early, early on. So um, I'm not saying that I have an explanation. I don't think there is an explanation. I don't think the electrical version of the universe is an explanation. I really think that the deeper understanding is yet to come. Mm -hmm. My orientation is that we are awakening to an elegance in a mind, in a consciousness that pervades the universe that we, that we don't yet know how to map out. We don't. And so I, I think we have to live, I'm talking now as a, from the point of view of the scientific community, we have to live with the ambiguity of not knowing, and that's not easy. We, we, we so want to have the answer. I, I want it, but I... I, I don't know what it is. But one last thing, to connect it to uh, Ilya Prigogine. Mm -hmm. So that Prigogine, his insight is that, that in some deep way, the universe is suffused with these self-organizing dynamics. There's mm -hmm. something like a form of intelligence, and right. they're everywhere. So, I mean, it's so fantastic that he had this orientation. He's, he's dead now, but... We're moving into the 21st century exploring these self-organizing dynamics as a form of mind or consciousness. That's mm -hmm. a long response, Charles, but I, I, I get yeah. passionate about this. Yeah, I like, I like the, um, the invocation of mystery and, and humility that you're offering here. Uh, humility, yeah. Yeah, because the impression that you get from reading the public relations of the... Uh, um, like for example, from from CERN, you know the the kind of like physics uh, news uh, for the, the at least on the popular level is that we've almost got this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We're real close. <laughs> right. 
we thought that in the in the early 20th century and then we discovered quantum mechanics right by the way just because i don't i i have attacked mainstream uh cosmologists here but let me because i don't want to just be negative and i want to point to a, a cosmologist that i think is is creative and and humble at the same time and he's presenting a a new theory hmm. of the universe that that has promise and his name is is lee smolin it's s-m-o-l-i-n He's, he's someone that your listeners will, will really enjoy. Uh, he's not very popular among, among cosmologists, I, I seem to. That's right. That's he my has, impression. Didn't he write the book, The Problem with Physics? Well, what he, what he wrote was, um, <laughs> he, the trouble with he physics. wrote a book attacking the multiverse, multiverse uh -huh. theory. And I think the title was Not Even Wrong. Not Even Wrong. Like the right. ultimate uh, condemnation of a theory is that it's not even wrong. And it right. can't be, you can't disprove, disprove the multiverse because it's, mm -hmm. it's about universes that are imagined to exist without any, without any proof. Mm -hmm. So he is, uh, he would be one of the, I, I think, most creative cosmologists out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I certainly don't know either. Um, I have a feeling, though, that, or I would like to believe that consciousness is involved somehow what you were talking about, about the, um, you know, expansion being precisely what is needed for there to be life. That's something similar yeah. has been, been um, blew my mind almost as much as the Mandelbrot set when I discovered that the uh, fundamental constants, if they were a little tiny bit different, you know, if the strong force were a little stronger uh, or a little weaker, then you would have either uh, runaway fusion in stars and they just blow up, you know, in seconds, or you would have no fusion at all, or it wouldn't reach critical mass and you'd have no, no stars either. And it's just like within, uh, I can't remember, like it's not even a few percent, it's within like, you know, hundreds or thousands of a percent precision. And there are many, and there are many of these, as you're pointing out, the expansion yeah. would just be one, the, the, the strong nuclear, the weak nuclear, the, the relationship between the elect electromagnetic and the gravitational, Right. All of them have this elegance. I mean, I, I, and I love the way you've connected to the Mandelbrot set so that the more we, we look at this, the more amazed we, we can become. Right. Yeah. And we, we would like to have an explanation for it. Like there's a comfort and a kind of control in being able to reduce this mystery to something that we can calculate and predict. And the idea that you just mentioned that there isn't an explanation that is like really philosophically troubling even to me but i also find it tantalizing <laughs> <laughs> i know just imagine what we've learned you know you have these pictures of of how people thought about the universe a couple thousand years ago but one of my yeah. favorites is um in the time of lucretius you know again like you know a couple thousand years ago there was a belief among like really intelligent people, sort of the Einsteins of the time, mm -hmm. that if you, if you took an army out at night and you had them all shout at the same time and then mm -hmm. got quiet, mm -hmm. you would hear them, you would hear their shout echo back from the stars. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had no idea of the vastness of the universe. Yeah. And, and so we look back on them and say, oh, wow, they just didn't understand. But I think that's the human condition. You see, we understand a, a, a lot more than they did, but we are, we are still just as baffled 
by the ultimate nature. You know, there's a the study at Stanford uh, years ago, it relates here, it was about trying to understand uh, creative people. And so they looked at creative um, mathematicians and scientists, musicians, uh, athletes, and they, they were looking for, you know, what is the, what's the commonality? Is it IQ? Is, it, is, it, is there a racial part to it? All mm-hmm. the, they looked at lots of variables. But the number one, the number one commonality among all the different groups of creative people was the ability to live with ambiguity. Mm-hmm. That was number one. And so I, I, I read, read that, I thought, the human condition means to live in between, to live in between things. We don't, we don't really know the details of where we came from, and we don't know the details of where we're going. We're in between. Mm-hmm. And there's some, somehow living there is, is a way of finding our way into creative energies. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel a frustration about not knowing these aspects, but I actually believe that we will learn more and more about the nature of this elegant, intelligent universe in which we live, but mm-hmm. we'll never complete it, or maybe in, in some far distant future, but in, in the, the near time, we have to learn to enjoy uh, not knowing mm-hmm. as much as we enjoy knowing. Both are, are wonderful. Well, if, if the Mandelbrot set is any kind of model or even allegory for the universe, then we will never complete it yeah. because the variety of structure is infinite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, isn't that nice? It just makes the universe I, so interesting. I like it better that way. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, if, if you believe, I mean, ultimately, I guess if you think that the universe is quantized, then it isn't infinite, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, the, what you were saying about, about these athletes and geniuses, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. who had this quality of being comfortable with ambiguity, I've noticed just really practically that when I become convinced of being right, and then I start using that uh, template to understand everything I see. Like I become, uh-huh. I become comfortable with a certain world story, with a certain uh, intellectual framework or template, and I start to use it more and more. And then I become unable to see things that don't fit into it and unable to put it down because I'm attached to it now because it works so well, put it down and apply other ways of seeing. And it actually makes me stupider. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder, you know, like what kind of cultural stupidity have we conjured by looking so, uh, rigidly or, or you know, so, so single-mindedly through this one, one, it's not just a theoretical lens, but it's an epistemological lens too. It's saying, saying the way to knowledge is you interrogate an external universe through experiment and the, you know, with the assumption that the question you ask does not affect the reality that you are probing. Like that's a metaphysical assumption. That is not yeah. testable in physics. Uh, yeah. All these metaphysical assumptions that combine to create the framework of science itself. Yeah, I love that. But I just I'm thinking that you're you've just enunciated a really important research endeavor. I would love to see this funded by the National Science Foundation. What are the what are the intellectual orientations 
that have made us stupid. I love that. So many of these have um, served a purpose. And, but we cling to them, just as you're saying. We cling to them because they worked in the past, but now they're making us stupid. So I think that, that's part of this moment. Of, we're in the middle of this deep transformation of consciousness, as we're talking about. And it'd be really helpful for us to identify those intellectual orientations that truly are making us stupid. By stupid, I mean, I mean there's a technical phrase it's it's activity that is harmful to both the other and oneself mm-hmm. and we and we do that we're doing a lot of that mm-hmm. you know yeah that, i love that charles that's a that's a great research endeavor yeah it's a nice cachet too it's, you know there's lots of studies on intelligence but about a study on stupidity <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah so, you know, i have another thought here too um about I guess these entrenched assumptions. Yeah. My when I when I thought about the uh, anthropic principle, which you were saying yeah. a version of, you know, that the universe is this way because it has to be for us to be here. Like that's yeah. not an explanation. No. You know, I, I thought of perhaps you know some kind of way in which the fundamental forces co-evolve and only have certain solutions in which they are somehow propping each other up like there's certain attractors you know if they um, are evolving somehow in relation to each other non-linearly and yeah you know there could be so i thought of things like that and then the other the other thing was well maybe it's the retrocausal observer effect of ourselves that collapses these many many possibilities into the one that can produce ourselves yeah yeah that's a that is um as I'm sure you know, one of the kind of radical cutting edges of, of contemporary physics. The retrocausality. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> that is, they're talking it's about really tricky. Uh, yeah. yeah, really. Yeah. And, and then, okay, so two things that I want to say at the same time, but I have to do it linearly, I think. <laughs> one Good. is, is, Rupert Sheldrake did this study of the history of the speed of light. Yeah. Also the yeah. history of the gravitational constant. Did you see that? Yes. <laughs> Rupert's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but go into detail. That's great. So, so you know, he, he um, looked at, at the increasing precision of measurements of the speed of light. And then, and then like, I think it was in 1928 or something, there was like a, whatever, 15-year period in which the speed of light changed by 20 meters per second and consistently in all these different measurements. And this was way above the margin of error. You know, by then they yeah, had a precision yeah. of, of much, much less than that. And then after whatever, 15 years, then it reverted back to, its, um, to where the previous measurements had been converging. So it really looked like it changed for a while. Yeah. And yeah. also he, he, you know, pointed out changes in the gravitational constant. And I actually got into trouble about this because we were at a TED, a TEDx thing. And I said, Oh, you know, that was really interesting. You ought to talk about that. And he did. And then the, then the TED talk got censored by TED and it led to this whole thing. I remember, I remember reading about that. Yeah. 
So it was just it was too much for the for the assumptions of yeah. the kid. And and so then um, and this is this is interesting for reasons having to do with the way that paradigms are maintained and protected because I read a, a, a refutation of Rupert's thesis of the change in the speed of light. And I think it was, I don't know if it was Jerry Coyne or somebody like that, you know, refuted it by showing a graph of measurements of the speed of light from, you know, 1900 or whatever to present day and showing how, no, in fact, they do converge on the present value. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess Rupert got this one wrong. Uh, until he, Rupert pointed out that that data series was missing precisely the period in question. <laughs> And it slid by my notice. You know? Wow. So wow. I can imagine if somebody is hostile to, to the idea yeah. that the constants of nature aren't constant, that they would dismiss it out of hand after reading that. Anyway, though, the, the idea that the constants aren't constant fed my um, you know, delightful, trippy uh, Im- imagining that, that, that their evolution has something to do with consciousness. At least open the door to that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going into a, a highly speculative mode here. Yeah. Um, I, we, we won't tell the other cosmologists if you do. That. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know what the future holds, but the the intuition, my own intuition, you know, for what it's worth, is that the universe itself is groping. Yeah, that's the word. And yes. that, that actually, that, that word comes from um, uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Wow. The universe is groping and that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't begin with, with certainty about how to proceed. Mm-hmm. And so it's all of these, these, the constants themselves are habits that have become ingrained. And they've become ingrained because the universe has found that they're fruitful. Mm-hmm. And so it wants to continue down that line of exploration. And that even, even here, I need to say that that idea that the constants are ingrained habits comes from one of the most impressive philosophers of, of Western history, Charles Sanders Peirce. Mm-hmm. That was his view. And, he's, and so I'm just picking up on that. And I, I like to think of the universe then as a is uh, suffused with a form of consciousness and mind that, is, that isn't just like human minds. It's different. We come out of it. And so I, I, I love, I just love thinking about the universe trying to find its way into a deeper domains of beauty. And it's, it's done such an amazing job already, but it's, it has, it, you know, it has like an infinite number of, of domains to explore, just like the Mandelbrot set, never mm-hmm. ends. Keeps deepening and deepening and deepening. That that just makes every cell of my body ring. <laughs> Great, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that may be you and I may be causing this from the future. This may be a retrocausative act right here. You know, yeah. we're, we're helping ourselves finally see. Mm-hmm. The idea of the universe groping toward more beauty or more life, more complexity, yeah. which are you know, related, all these things. Um, it fits in with some of the new biology as well. How? Well, um, hmm. 
15 years ago, you know, I, I advocated a Neil Lamarckian understanding of evolution. I called it Neil Lamarckian. Yeah. And I would, I would, you know, provocatively tell if I had occasion to speak to a biologist, I would say, yeah, I'm a Lamarckian. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> they would roll their eyes, you know, because if, for those listening, Lamarck, basically he advocated the theory of the um, inheritance of acquired characteristics, which has been caricatured as if you cut the tail of the rat off, then the next generation will grow without a tail. And that's not really what he was saying. Um, but he was saying that there is a striving, that the giraffes get longer and longer necks because they are striving to reach the higher leaves. So that, that desire wow. and intention feed uh-huh. back into genetics. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. last year I was at a, some gathering and there was a, a biologist. And so I decided I would taunt him by saying, <laughs> <laughs> I was a Lamarckian and he, he didn't bat an eye. He said, oh, everybody's a Lamarckian now. Because, oh, wow. because of epigenetics, acquired characteristics can enter uh, can be inherited, and a little less known. It's not. It's not only epigenetics, but it's also um, the genes themselves. Organisms have all kinds of uh, enzymes to to cut and splice and do genetic engineering on themselves, and thereby pass on genetic changes. Uh, you know, in the germline. You know, to future generations. So basically. So, so to go back to Lamarck, like this, this idea of evolution being guided by a wanting, by a striving, that's yeah. so resonant with the other scale you're talking about, the groping yeah. of the universe trying to align its four forces in a way that works for a while, at least, and generates a burst of complexity. And maybe, maybe it's not working anymore. Just like us, we have... Yeah. A, ingrained habits of perception and action and they work for a while, you know, and you become very successful at them. And then at some point they stop working. And I wonder if the crisis of humanity mirrors a cosmic crisis where, you know, we're maybe experimenting with some different ways of being. I love that. That's fantastic. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and right in our own, in our own struggles to make sense of things, that we are this universe, we are this life that's that's striving, and I love mm-hmm. that. That's great. Love yeah. that. I didn't know that about the like all biologists consider themselves, or many many are are now considering themselves Lamarckian. That's that's fabulous. I mean, yeah, there's there's the you know the selfish gene paradigm is really um, becoming awesome. the path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I would look. I would look forward to exploring that. That's wonderful, Charles. Love that. Yeah. <sighs> is it great to be alive? It is. Yeah. It really is a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> In such a moment to be part of this is really something. Mm. So, wh- where do you? Uh, I guess maybe I'll have other cosmology questions, but I think I won't ask that right now. I, I, I'm curious just to turn this to your teaching right now. Yeah. And, and these ideas about the conscious universe looking at itself and all that. In what way is this understanding 
a medicine for our society right now that you may have discovered as you teach yeah. people at a university? Yeah. Um, yeah, medicine, or I think of it sometimes as, as a remedy. Mm. And um, I mean, there's so many different approaches, that, and we need all of them. But the one that I'm that I myself am fascinated by right now is related to what we've been talking about, but, but to give it a, a focus, I would say that science um, at its best has generated incredible insights and concepts. So just the things we're talking about, I mean, the, the strong nuclear interaction, right? And that, that wasn't known. I mean, in the history of humanity, we didn't even mm -hmm. know it existed. Mm -hmm. And yet here it is, holding all of the nuclei of the atoms of our body together. So just, I mean, that, that, you know, that, wow, that's as important as, as anything that's ever happened. So, you know, I, I, I could live the rest of my life teaching the conceptual knowledge of science and never uh, grow bored. It's just so rich. But, but I think that another step is required. And that is, we, we need to find ways for experiencing the knowledge. So it's, mm. it's, not, it's not just knowing this knowledge, but also living it, living mm. it or experiencing it. I mean, this, certainly this um, is what happened uh, to you with the Mandelbrot set. I mean, there's, there's a way in which you can, you can understand the mathematics conceptually and, and just stay with that right. or allow it to permeate in and then and just have your, you just feel yourself transformed. So mm -hmm. it's you know, like entering into a deep, deep experience. So then what, what, I, um, what I am currently doing is actually working with the novelist, uh, Carolyn Cook, at um, the California Institute of Integral Studies, because, because in literature, there is that endeavor of, of rendering human experience. And so we're bringing together the, um, this, this approach of art, of literature, with the understanding of science and cosmology and um, creating, we're, we're creating works that are expressions of the experience of the universe hmm. from the perspective of our, our contemporary scientific understanding. Now, hmm. when I say it that way, it sounds, I don't know, it almost sounds like we're, we're achieving a lot. I hope we are, but hmm. I want to emphasize the fact that um, it's in the exploratory phase. So it's, it's the students that are coming and working with us. We're, we're just inventing this. And we have a, we have a word uh, that we invented to describe it. We call it autocosmology. Autocosmology. Uh -huh. It just as a way of, of trying to indicate that we're bringing together our own autobiography mm. with the, the scientific cosmology. How mm. do we experience in our daily lives these, these incredible truths of the universe? So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's... A, it's a long answer, but that's, that's yeah. where I'm at right now in my teaching.
Yeah, I mean, I resonate with that. Uh, it seems what you're doing is, in a way, bringing science uh, back around toward its, I'm not sure if I would say it's original motivation. Yeah, maybe it's original motivation, but certainly it's, let's just say, true purpose, which is to increase our apprehension of the awe and mystery of this universe. Like yeah, to, to yeah, well face-to-face with the miracle. Face-to-face, yes. Yeah, I, I feel that whenever I, I mean, well, it's like the same feeling as looking at the Mandelbrot set or looking at, at like cell physiology and just how endlessly complex and perfect it is. Like, it's yeah. just, it's a miracle. How can this possibly yeah. happen, you know? How, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Just you go into cell physiology and yeah. just you start to understand what's going on there. It's just, it's like, I mean, for me, it, these are deep spiritual experiences. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what we're after. Yeah. 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 Whereas it's what's about, it's, it's something about it just a, finding a way to be, to have our minds opened up by the, the infinite beauty in which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. That would, that would be another way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then maybe the, the best result of that would be to stir within us the desire to contribute to that beauty. Exactly, and to, and to, to realize that what we, what we are doing, we're touching into the sacred. Mm-hmm. I mean, that word is, is loaded, uh, but I, I mean it here now just with, with something that is, that is so infinitely valuable and, and requires our respect and reverence. Mm-hmm. And to and to walk through life with that orientation mm-hmm. is is I think the challenge of this transformation mm-hmm. in consciousness. That'd be another way of saying it. Yeah, and if we did that, we wouldn't be stupid anymore. And by the definition, <laughs> of well, see, yeah, there would be. There's an example of we've just identified one of the the prime orientations of stupidity. It is to it is to consider Earth. It was just a bunch of stuff that's there for us to use any way we want. Right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a pathway into stupidity as opposed right. to realizing that we're, we're in the midst of um, mm-hmm. some kind of miracle. So in a way, we could say that the opposite of stupidity is not intelligence, but the opposite of stupidity is reverence. Beautiful. I love it. And, and in reverence and in apprehension of the, of the mystery and the miracle – then we can't hold on to the arrogance that stunts our thought. Beautiful. Again, it's like you're, you're articulating a spiritual path right here. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, I, I like to, uh, in my book, my recent book, I go through the ways in which science is a religion. Uh-huh. Everything from, you know, unquestioned metaphysical principles to a priesthood to official dogmas to uh, evangelists, you know, science writers, to an initiation ordeal called graduate school, to its own arcane language um, system to indoctrinate youth, schisms, heretics, apostates, like the whole deal, right? Yeah. And, and then I say to thereby, I'm not saying that, oh, so science is just a religion, so don't yeah. believe it. I'm saying... That, like to, to say that would be to adopt science's own definition of a religion as a term of dismissal. Yeah. But instead to say, 
yeah, it is a beautiful religion. It like like any religion. Oh, it has like a a, a road to truth, the scientific method, right? So like, so any religion can help us to see what we otherwise could not see and can put us in touch with the sacred, put us in touch with, with God. Beautiful. And and, you you and I have just been describing exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I love it. I love that. I absolutely do. And what brings to mind, I have to tell you is um, the, uh, the thought of, of my own principal teacher in terms of uh, working with a living person. And that is uh, the cultural historian uh, Thomas Berry, mm-hmm. who died um, you know, 10 years ago, but he, we worked together for many years. And, and what he, what he impressed upon me was the, the science is a process. It's, it has a history. And he said that we hit, this was his view, which I love so much. He said, for the last uh, three or four centuries, we've had science in its, mechanistic formulation, which you referred to earlier, the mechanism. And he said, what, what's taking place now is that science is entering its wisdom phase. Mm. I, just, I just loved that. So, that, mm. so science has been serving um, technology in, in good and bad ways, and, and that, that will continue for sure. But something else is happening, and that is that that science itself is, is a pathway into, as you said, science can be a pathway into the sacred. Yes. And that is with Mandelbrot set, with Ilya Prigogine, with uh, Rupert Sheldrake, with, with these um, the biologists who are, who are realizing that we're all neo-Lamarckians, as you're mm-hmm. saying. That's part of the big transformation of our time, I believe. Yeah. Hmm. Do you know the work of Thomas Berry? Um, very little firsthand. Yeah, everybody tells me that um, there's a lot of resonance between my work and Thomas Berry's. And yeah, let me tell you one of them that you'll love um, yeah. knowing. So that the phrase "new story." So that yeah, that that really when I um, when I discovered he wrote a he wrote a little essay in 1978. Mm-hmm which I read in 1979, and the title was The New Story. Hmm. And that was, when I, when I read that, I, it somehow I knew in a, in a sort of dark, intuitive way, I, I'm not with great clarity, but on some level I knew the, the whole trajectory of my life. It's amazing how that, hmm. how that you can, we can discover in, in certain moments just who we are and what we're about. And in a real sense, I've done very little uh, then carry forward this this whole idea of the new story. Mm-hmm. So we ended up writing a book called The Universe Story. Mm-hmm. But that was simply um, further development of these ideas in this little this little essay in this story. So you will, um, if you ever uh, you know read him, you'll you'll discover a lot of wonderful um, moments of resonance mm-hmm. with your own work. Yeah. Ah, well, I think um, I think a uh, invocation of Thomas Berry is a good place for us to to uh, wrap up for now. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That's great, Charles. It's been such a delight. Yeah, this is really fun. Like every ten years, we'll get together. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, maybe more often than that. But um, I hope so. 
But yeah. wasn't it, the last time was about, I don't know, was it maybe eight years ago? Mm, I think it was five years ago. Oh, was it five? Oh, good. Like yeah. Good. It was closer than I thought. Yeah. I so enjoyed talking with you, Charles. And, and yeah. Yeah, me I too. Wish thank you all the best with your great work. It really yeah, is. thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for your time and, and your uh, My pleasure in your life. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.